1: Welcome in to the Illini Enquirer podcast. Jeremy Warner, Illini Enquirer publisher here. I did not plan on doing a podcast today. It's Wednesday, uh, July 29th, and I really do not want to do this podcast today. But unfortunately, the news came out today, first reported by Lauren Tate of the News Gazette, that Illini basketball coaching legend Lou Henson has passed away at the age of 88. Lou Henson, the all-time winningest coach in Illinois basketball history, had more than 400 wins, 423 wins to 224 losses, led the Illini to 12 NCAA tournament runs, and had one of the best uh, runs in Illinois basketball history during the 80s. The 80s belonged to the Illini, and it culminated into that final four appearance with the 1988-89 flying Illini, Lou coach until about 1996, uh, obviously after the Deion Thomas scandal with the NCAA. And I didn't get to cover Lou Henson, of course. I was just a young lad at the end of his career. But I did get to meet Lou Henson a few times. And boy, the aura people talk about is certainly true. Lou Henson and his wife, Mary, um, who is an unbelievable person, Uh, just were unbelievably nice to me and uh, acted like they'd known me for years and you just feel this warmth from them. And today I want to talk with somebody who knows him, Lou Henson, incredibly well. And outside of Mary, I don't know if there's anybody who could give me more insight into the man, Lou Henson, than his friend and former reporter who covered him, Lauren Tate of the News Gazette. I've long wanted to get Lauren this podcast and i hope one day we can have a conversation just about him about his career about covering illinois and uh, his impact uh, is unbelievable but lauren and lou are just two legends in their own right and lauren chronicled lou's career from a rough start here uh, to the unbelievable success and the not so great ending uh, to his time here at the university of illinois and i talked to lauren about it And I think the biggest thing to take away is, yeah, we talk about his basketball impact, but Lou left an indelible impact, not only on the Illini athletics program, but on the Champaign-Urbana community. And anyone that ran into Lou, I haven't heard a bad word from them about him. And I think that is his legacy. And I'm glad Lauren Tate, the man, the myth, the legend, as I like to refer to him, who's covered Illinois athletics for more than 60 years, who has covered all of Lou Henson's career and became extremely close with Lou uh, you know, as, as their relationship evolved. It's kind of an old-school relationship, and uh, we dive into that. We dive into Lou's impact at Illinois and uh, just what his legacy is in this community. I was glad to talk with Lauren. I'm glad he was willing to talk, and uh, it was everything I thought it would be, and I think an unbelievable uh, great honor uh, and memory of Lou Henson, Illini legend.
0: Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at eBayMotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.
1: Well, Warren, um, I've wanted to talk to you for a while. Um, I just love talking to you, but uh, I didn't want these to be the circumstances. You and you know, Lou Henson had, had quite the relationship. But uh, condolences to you. I mean, he he battled all the way to, to age 88. I know he's dealt with cancer for for so long. Um, but, uh, boy, he just battled through this all, and it's pretty amazing he he made it to this point, but uh, it's a credit to Lou, and he? he was a fighter.
2: Yeah, credit, credit to Lou and the modern medicine, because they brought him back from several really uh, problem situations. He was, uh, you know, 17 years ago, he was still coaching, and he was on the sideline, and all of a sudden, he came down with this uh, non-Hodgkin's uh, disease, of uh, lymphoma, and... Um, you know from that moment on it's been a battle because he was unconscious for a couple of weeks right there in the very beginning in 2003 and and uh i know when i when i flew down uh, with a friend of mine to visit him he um he was just getting to the point where he was able to get to a wheelchair you know he was just at that point and then he went from the wheelchair to, to a walker and then he went from a walker to walking and the next thing you know he's swimming and playing bridge and he was a he, you know he's a guy that even an, even a, a couple of weeks ago, just a couple of weeks ago, he could still beat the guy that was staying with, with the family and, and helping. He could still beat him in checkers. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's an amazing guy.
1: Yeah, he was. <clears throat> what an amazing life. And, you know, Lauren, I, I, I always think about your relationship. And, and today, uh, coaches can be a lot more standoffish, as you know. Um, but how would you kind of describe your relationship as a reporter, as a columnist, uh with lou
2: well he was here such a long time from 75 to what 95 or 96 about 20 years and it i i would tell you that it grew it wasn't like that in the beginning although lou lou would allow everybody out to practice we didn't have so many and we didn't have we, you know he would talk to everybody after every practice and uh, you know you, you it, it was almost a routine uh, you know when uh, toward the end of the day uh, he dropped by practice at five o'clock or so and talked to Lou at six. And then sometimes after a while, uh, you know, Lou did so much of his work early, you know, he he got up at three to four o'clock in the morning. And he did all that uh, film work. So after practice, I don't know, one day he said, let's go out and have a drink. And we did. And the next thing you know, that became a habit. So we, we began, uh, you know, having a drink after practice for a lot of those days and a lot of those years. And then and it was a time, you know, when I, I would, I was interested in who they were recruiting and they were always recruiting. Jeremy already recruiting somebody from the state of Illinois, right? Or several from the state of Illinois. And, uh, I made a lot of those trips with him. I was picking all state teams at that time and it helped me in my job. And, uh, and, and we, we just, that relationship just built over time. And then you could trust Lou, regardless of anything, you could always trust him. He wouldn't tell you everything, but he wouldn't lie to you.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's just a, a different kind of relationship that you don't get all the time. Now some coaches still do, but uh, how how did that relationship evolve, Warren? Even you know later on into his life.
2: Well, I think as I explained to you, you know, when he was during those years he was here, it just grew and grew. And then of course when he left, we stayed in touch, even though he was down in New Mexico State. He kept his home here, and the home that he bought when he came here in 1975 is the same home that that he died in on Saturday. I mean, they, he never, they never got another house. And Mm -hmm. and of course they had a home in uh, Las Cruces as well. And and for a time he spent equal time, both places, but I, I, you know, and the other, he liked to play golf. And, and and so we wound up playing a lot of golf together. We just did things together a lot and um, went out with Lou and Mary a lot. And, you know, we just, we were very close to the family. It just, you wouldn't have it ever developed that way. I don't think again, but and I'm not even saying that's the right thing to do, but it just evolved that way. and And uh, you know, we became friends.
1: yeah Warren, uh, uh, I want you to kind of take me through a little bit of his career here because you were here to cover it. When he was hired, what did you think of him? what What did you think of the hire?
2: I didn't think it was a particularly good hire in my heart. I was hopeful. Uh, I don't know why. Uh, we had just had Gene Bartow here, and he took the UCLA job. The team was 8-18. Eight and 18. I didn't know if Luke could do it. Uh, I mean, I, as I told you, he really grew on me. I mean, and the more I saw of him and the way he worked, and, and of course, he had the strong recruiter in, in uh, Tony Yates in, in the beginning and later on uh, with Jimmy Collins. But he uh, He was a bulldog recruiter and he uh it took him a while it took him a long while to get this thing off the ground it just didn't happen overnight there were several years there where they struggled to get to 500 and didn't make it you know for the season and, and their the record in the big 10 wasn't particularly good but it but once you got it rolling in the 1980s i mean they the, the 80s they were just fantastic the whole time starting with the the era when they had Bruce Douglas and Ephraim Winters and George Montgomery and Altenberger and those guys, and right on up through that outstanding 1989 Flying Illini team. I, I just, uh, I just, I don't think I was confident initially that he. But I, I he was a guy that, and, and a lot of, a lot of people were upset with Lou, You know, we would lose games, and they would be. They, his style was not, uh, did not fit for everyone. But it, he was, again, he just grew on, he just, he's a bulldog and, yeah. and just in life and, 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 on the basketball court. And he was way, way tougher with his players than anybody realized. Not in a nasty way, but in a really tough way. Mm-hmm. And he, 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 was, he was by far more, uh, stronger that way than anybody realized, I mean, no, nobody knew what was happening in those practices. And he, he was really, he, he'd get after people pretty good in the practices.
1: What was he walking into when he took this job, Warren? Because I, I don't know if people know what Illinois basketball was at that time. He got here. What was it?
2: Well, first of all, we go back a year. Harv's last team was 5-18, and 18, and they had no African-American players on the team. Hmm. Bardo took over, and he, he recruited two junior college players who had been uh, out of Chicago. They were playing in Iowa and uh uh, that started that that gave lou a basis on which to grow he also uh uh, uh, i think it was um also recruited audie matthews Mm -hmm. so he had three solid players that played for lou so they were competitive i mean they weren't five and 18 and eight and 18 they were another step up but they still weren't competitive in the big 10 which was so good in those days and it took a while for Luda to, to really uh hit hit the black community in Chicago, which you have to do in order to be successful. If you're gonna if you're only gonna recruit players from the state of Illinois, you have to be strong in Chicago. You have mm-hmm. to. There just aren't enough to go around elsewhere and not not in this era, maybe in a past era that was different, but in, in the modern era you you've gotta recruit Chicago and that's what he did. And he didn't do much, you know, uh what we're seeing Underwood do right now uh, internationally and nationally uh, is far different than the way Lou approached it. First of all, he would only maybe offer four, five, six guys. That would be the most in a year. And right now we're seeing Underwood maybe offer, I don't know how legitimate some of those offers are, but you, you follow it more closely than I do. Yeah. He might offer 30, 35 players in one year. Mm-hmm. It's just a different, a different world. And, and Lou built his team around Illinois players in the 1989 Flying Illini team, every member of the squad was from the state of Illinois.
1: It's crazy. It's crazy to think about. Well, he didn't have a a winning Big Ten record, in his first five years. Um, Illinois was patient. What was that? Were were fans patient? Um, What what was that like those first five
2: years? I remember one of the writers in Decatur called for him to be fired (laughs) at that time after about four years or so. And there were a lot of people who were impatient with him. And, you know, I, I told you I wasn't confident in the very beginning that he could get it done. I, I just wasn't sure. But uh, he, like I say, he just grew and grew on you. And he kept, he kept working. He's just a, such a hard worker. And he was a whole lot smarter than anybody realized. Mm-hmm. He, was, he knew what he was doing. And, and he really worked the state. He made some great friends up there. And Bob Hambrick at Simeon and, and Sonny uh, Cox at uh, King. He had some coaches that, that he could count on to, to give him a fair chance that they're athletes, and, and he was able to build, you know, build the team up. And like I said, I, I, I can't remember the record in the 1980s, but the 1980s really did belong to the lineup.
1: Yeah, obviously the talent <laughs> was the big part of that. But what, what about Lou as a coach? Because um, obviously you've got to get talent on but you've got to be able to use that talent well. Uh, what kind of coach was he? Why was he a successful coach?
2: He's meticulous and he's very strong on defense and he would let the team run, but uh, he wouldn't let it get out of bounds, out of hand. He, uh, he spent an awful lot of time on defense and uh, he felt like, you know, when he got, a, most of the players he got, he figured were already pretty established offensive players, but nobody that he ever got, I don't think he thought, could play defense. Although Harper came pretty close when he came in. He was a tremendous defensive player right from the beginning so was bruce douglas and so he he uh he emphasized that aspect of it and and he worked long hours that people didn't know about as i said earlier he got up no later than four o'clock in the morning no later and he went right to the film and he would he would study film for for hours before he even went to the office and you know then that's why I say when, by the time practice was over, he had a full day and, and then uh, he could relax a little bit after practice. In those days, all practices, you know, were in the afternoon, late afternoon.
1: Well, <laughs> Lauren, they get to the point where they're competing at the top of the big 10 for most of a decade. Um, and man, I, to, to be a part of that, Lauren, after, you know, you'd seen the struggles of the program, the, 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 the scandal of the program, what was that like for you to, to be a witness to all of that.
2: Well, you got to remember when I came here in 1955, the first thing that hit me in the face was the slush run scandal. When we had a, we lost both coaches, head football coach, head basketball coach, Harry Combs, and, you know, with Pete Elliott, but they were fired because of the, the scandal, the slush run scandal. And so I was, you know, and, and uh, it just kind of, nothing surprised me after that i i I realized that there's a lot of stuff going on and there's a lot of stuff going on right now that i don't fully understand why isn't you know why for instance arizona can keep rolling along like they are kansas can keep rolling along without being hit with the with the kind of uh, sanctions that you know that north carolina should have got the team that beat illinois in the finals uh in 2005 i mean i i there's a lot of stuff going on and and a lot of cheating going on yeah. and let's not kid ourselves and yet um, Illinois got caught up at a time in 1990 just when they were peaking they got knocked right out you know knocked out of the saddle.
1: but what did that do e- even just that 80s run, Warren, what did that do for the community in the program to have that kind oh, of success wow.
2: i think we came expected i mean we expected success and were just let down year after year by losses in the NCAA tournament. The NCAA tournament, one loss and you're out. And nobody ever suffered more grievous, disappointing, ooh, just awful losses than Lou did in in the tournament. I mean, those two point losses, whether it was Austin P or Villanova, or whoever, when, you know, those uh, Kentucky, there, he he lost some some games that just broke your heart. Even even in Seattle in the Final Four. You know, Illinois was down, went down in the final seconds in a tie game, and, and uh, Michigan knocked in a rebound. You know, this is the same Michigan team that Illinois had killed twice before. In fact, just a few weeks before at Michigan, Illinois ran the score up on them. And uh, it was just, you know, I can't explain it. That was a big disappointment in Lou's career was the inability to capitalize when he had great teams in the tournament and, and would lose uh, so many close games, as he did. And uh, they had to live with that. That's what happened.
1: Uh, how did how did the Dion NCAA stuff? How did how did he handle that at the time, Warren? And 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 how did you see that kind of impact him?
2: Well, it it certainly impacted him because he could only have two scholarships right. the next year. And Dion set <laughs> out his freshman year, you know, uh, through all that confusion. Uh, it was uh, it was a it was a big letdown because it came right after the Final Four. The Flying, Illini, the Flying Illini was as popular as any team in the nation in 1989. There's no doubt. The 88 and 89 teams were just tremendous. And, you know, and I think that w- what happened was I, I think we felt put upon by not only Iowa but by Indiana and by Notre Dame. I think Digger Phelps was uh, concerned about losing Lafonso Ellis. Lafonso Ellis had – Indicated some people that he might be interested in transfer, and of course, to be transferred, he would probably come to Illinois. Well, Digger was very aggressive about that and felt like Illinois cheated uh, to try to take Lafonso away from Notre Dame. So we had that situation, and we they had the situation with you know with with Pearl uh, at Iowa trying to uh, trying to get uh, Jimmy Collins in trouble for supposed offers to. Um, to Dion, that obviously never happened. I mean, he didn't offer Dion seventy-five thousand dollars or whatever the number was. Was That the number, yeah. I think it was. It, and you know, it's, it's just that it, he he just felt like it was what happened was unfair. And and yet, uh, like he he always was a bulldog when it came to work. And it didn't mean he was going to change. We, we, Illinois just wasn't as good when they lost those players. Mm-hmm. And in the early nineties, I think Ron Gunther thought that Lou had lost his touch. From a recruiting standpoint, and I think that the relationship between Ron Gunther and Lou at that time uh, was a little shaky, mm-hmm. you know, and, and maybe that, maybe it was appropriate that, uh, that Lou retire. and, and I think that, that he was actually pushed to retire. Mm-hmm. I don't think he would have retired. I know, and this is true, this is a true story. He caught a hold of Jim Turpin and I, and we sat down in a restaurant. And Lou was saying, What should I do? I mean, he was asking for advice. I think he's gonna, still going to do what he wanted to do. But he wanted, and, you know, and I think it was time, at that time, it was time for him to step down because he had lost the edge in recruiting because of all the things that happened. Plus, I think Ron Gunther had lost confidence in him. I think that's fair to say. And I think Ron wanted to bring in his own man, and, and that's what he did. And that, I, th- that was a tough period for Lou, and he sat out a year. And then, you know, of course, that next year, New Mexico State had a problem with, uh, I think the coach's name was McCarthy, and he was fired for cheating, and they decided to bring Lou down to help them find a coach. Mm-hmm. And he was, he was in contact with the athletic director down there for several months as they ran the gamut trying to find the right guy to bring in New Mexico State. And the AD, whose name I've forgotten, I'm sorry, uh, finally decided, wait a minute, what about you, Lou? And Lou said, "Well, I could do it for a year," and so he did it for a year for one dollar per month. <laughs> that was his salary one dollar per month for a whole year, and then the next year they hired him permanently, and he went on to coach down there.
1: And he did pretty well. He had a, he had a couple of the conference titles down yeah. there.
2: Yeah. Oh yeah, and he had several twenty one seasons, and and uh, he was yeah he uh, he had some he had a good degree of success down there. With, I remember one year that uh, the the problem was when they went in the NCAA tournament, guess who they got to play? Kentucky. (laughs) So that that run didn't last long. That was not a run. That was a running into the brick wall.
1: Yeah. Well, Lauren, um, you can't tell Illinois basketball's history or where they are now without Lou Henson. Just what was his imprint on this program?
2: I think his ultimate imprint was the fact that everybody realized he's just a terrific man who uh, who was a friend to everybody they ever met. Uh, I can remember one time walking down Neal Street on a Friday night with Lou and Mary and and there were four of us and we walked from the old news Gazette building we walked up to Neal Street and started walking south on Neal Street past all those. By all those uh, tables and chairs and every time we'd come to a table he'd stop and talk to the people it took us 45 minutes to walk <laughs> one block honest to goodness I mean that's just a, that's the kind of thing that he left you you're bringing up the you know we're, we're talking about the basketball side but mm-hmm. I'm talking about another side of him that really uh, was so important during the later years where the people, there were a lot of people upset with Lou Coulson because he lost some key games, and lost overtime to Purdue, or he lost a tough game, you know, at home to who Indiana or whoever. And those games, you know, people would walk out just mad at Lou, and then they'd meet him and just soften. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how many guys I've seen just change their whole feeling about Lou Henson after they met him, you know. And, and he met a lot. By the way, when his son died in the 1990s. Uh, Lou Jr. He he was, that really was a setback for him. And after that, many times, Mary and Lou would visit people who had a an incident in their family like that, a death in their family. And they could talk to people they had never met. And they, they were brave enough to, walk, I couldn't do it. I just, somebody I'd never met, how do I walk up to the father of someone I never met and say, I'm sorry that your son was killed. Mm -hmm. How could I do that? That's really hard. I mean, but they did it. They did that sort of thing. And they made a lot of friends that way. He made a friend of everybody who ever got around him on the golf course. He made a friend of everybody connected with the the various things that he was involved in, including McKinley, uh, uh, the homes. And I'm I'm not getting the name right, but you, you know what I'm trying to say. Everything that he was involved in, he made friends.
1: And I think that's his ultimate legacy, isn't it, Lauren? I mean, yes, he won basketball games, and that gave him this kind of yeah, platform. Yeah. But, I mean, I met him, and and he acted like he knew me a great deal. Like he was actually interested in me, and there's just this warmth. And Mary is yeah. a big part of that. I mean, I know you know Mary so, so well, but um, she obviously was a huge part of that. And they were just, you know, the, the mayors of, of Champaign. I mean, they, they were the most popular people in Water. Champaign.
2: That is exactly right. And I will tell you that Mary's been running the show for the last 17 years.
1: And it's been a tough,
2: a tough road because he's been very sick multiple times. Not only the first time when he was, he was almost given up for dead then, but uh, that was back in 2003, 17 solid years of this where she's had to just take care of him basically. And particularly in recent years. And and then they moved out to that uh, kind of a nursing home, uh, out here uh, at the Carl home about, uh, you know, I'm going to get the months wrong, but was, what was it, maybe six months ago they moved out there because she thought that she needed the help out there and she thought that they would, that he would pass there. Mm. And that was why she moved there. And, and a couple of times Lou was able to go home. And I know one day we're having lunch and, and Lou said, uh, take me home, don't take me back to Carl. I said, okay, you sure? And he said, yeah. And he says, we're going to move back there. And sure enough, he just pestered her to a point where she finally agreed to move back to their home, which, they, you know, because uh, it was pretty expensive living in, in two places, you know, and having to pay out there, too. And so they moved back and, and Lou died peacefully in his home, in his bed, um, you know, uh, with the family around him on Saturday morning, Saturday. I don't know if it's morning, is it on Saturday.
1: Well, Lauren, uh, I can't thank you enough for just sharing your thoughts on, on what was such a great man, and, and, and again, condolences. Is, is there anything else you want people to know about Lou or any any final stories you want to share?
2: No, but I think that the word legacy that you brought up is a perfect word because his legacy is all the things that he did for people along the way, and the, and the, uh, the honesty and fairness that he treated everybody with, and, oh, I... I he he was just a, a prince of peoples. I mean, you're just never going to meet a guy that you can trust any more than Lou Henson. And it's just, uh, you know, the last few years have really been tough. And uh, he's fought back a number of times when, I remember when Mark Coombs said uh, three years ago, he said, you know, he hated to go back to Florida. He's moving to Florida. I shouldn't say go back. He was moving down there. And he said, I hate to go because I know Lou doesn't have many more days left. Mm-hmm. That's three years ago. Lou's outlived a lot, of, a lot of people in the meantime.
1: Fantastic stuff from Warren Tate, the, the legend at the News Gazette honoring another legend in Lou Henson. If you have memories of Lou, I tweeted this out. You can find me at jwarner247. And if you have any personal, especially, experiences, please tweet those at me. Uh, I'm trying to accrue some, and, and we we'll love to hear any of your stories that you have. But um, a great man, a, a great basketball coach, and uh, changed Champaign-Urbana for the better, changed Illinois athletics and Illinois basketball for the better. Condolences again to his family and the entire Illini athletics family, including you, Illini fans, but what a life. What a life, and if we can all make that kind of impact, I think we've done our job. Uh, So rest in peace, Lou, and we will talk to you next time on the Illini Enquirer podcast.
2: On Paramount Plus.
1: Why did he kill his
2: family? The answer lies across the ocean in a woman named Sylvie. She's a can
0: model. Where desire leads to deception.
2: I ended up spending twelve and fifteen thousand
1: dollars a day. It was addictive. I can't get you out. And obsession leads to murder.
2: Who did this to your family?
0: You can't really maintain a fantasy forever. Control all Desire now streaming on Paramount Plus.